This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Perhaps you can hear your dad wrestling with the sticky tape as he gives his best attempt to wrap Nana's Christmas present for, next, for the next day. Maybe you can hear the sounds of Christmas Lampoon's National Vacation or whatever it's called or Home Alone 2 on TV in the background. You can smell the pine Christmas tree as its aroma fills the room and then mingles with the smell of mum's Christmas pie that she's cooking for the next day. Can you remember that moment as a young child, the expectation and anticipation of Christmas Day, the excitement as you see the presents start to pile up under the tree, as you smell the food, as you participate in whatever family rituals your family has to get ready for Christmas? Well, that posture of anticipating and waiting is the very posture of the whole nation of Israel and indeed of all God's people as we wait and anticipate for the arrival of the king. Israel was a nation that was waiting. We saw last week. They're anticipating that moment when God would fulfill the promises that he had given, that he would do what he said he would do, that God's promised king would arrive, that one that God promised to Abraham that he would bless all of the nations. The one who was promised to David would sit on his throne forever. A great, great, great grandson of David would come. And so the people of Israel are standing on their tippy toes, looking, reaching for the horizon, waiting for the promises of God to arise. And like guests at a a wedding As they wait for the the bride to walk down the aisle, the nation of Israel is waiting and anticipating the arrival of the king. And they wait year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. They wait and nothing. Has God forgotten his promises? Is God no longer good? Have his promises failed? 400 years of silence. 400 years since the last prophet uttered the word of God and then two angels appear to two women. One who is impossibly old, far too old to have a child and the other who is impossibly pure, too much of a virgin to be pregnant. And he makes a promise. And God breaks that 400-year silence with the cries of a newborn baby. The king is arriving. You know, I still remember that moment when the little paddle pop stick was blue and positive. And Tasha's like, you're sitting down. I've got some news. We're having a baby. And then you go to the doctor and you get a blood test and the doctor says, yes, I can confirm the paddle stick was correct. You're having a baby. And then you go to the dating ultrasound and you see this tiny little heartbeat blipping on the screen and you have all of the other ultrasounds after that and you see 
pictures, like 3D ultrasounds of the shape of this thing that's living inside of your wife. And you're like, my goodness. And then you wait and you wait and you wait for eight months. And I still remember the moment the night before Judah arrived. Tash and I went to the movies. We had Thai first. I think we had a spicy curry. Just perhaps encourage the encourage this baby along and we watched a movie and we sat down and said to each other I wonder if this is the last date night we're going to have in a long time and we got home and uh, I remember Tash saying to me my water's broke and I freaked out on the inside but on the outside I was calm and ready and I said to her I'm just going to have a shower I'll get ready and then we'll go to the hospital But I was freaking out on the inside and this moment that we had been waiting for, for eight months, had finally come. And then he took a long time to arrive and we required emergency cesarean and all the things that you didn't really expect to happen. But that's exactly where Elizabeth finds herself. Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist and she is a relative of Mary. And she is told that in her old age that she is going to have a son, that he would prepare the way for the Messiah. When the angel visited Mary, Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. She's in her third trimester. And as the angel says, Mary, you're going to have a child, he also says, and your relative, Elizabeth, no one knows this, But she also is with child. She also is pregnant in her old age. And so Mary and Elizabeth begin to share the joy together of waiting for the arrival of their baby boys. What a a joy. They're, They're doing it together. And that might be really fun if you're doing that with a friend. But the reality is Elizabeth is old enough to be Mary's grandmother. And it's probably somewhat awkward to see your grandmother pregnant. But they're doing it together, waiting anticipating and we kind of know what that's like as a church because anchor has been a baby factory this year we have had a lot of babies born just in the last couple of months we've had ollie sharp orson lynch joey hodgkinson kip or georgia Vasalo, annabel mayer ruben wary and just this week and i love this name atticus salvador or what a good name hey that's a, and maybe I've, if i've forgotten anyone else i'm sorry It's been a busy week. But there are a number of mums in our church family who know what it's like to wait, to be waiting. In fact, there's probably a number of mums who know what it's like to experience the disappointment of waiting and never seeing the blue line on the paddle pop stick. And never having the doctor's appointment when the doctor says, I can confirm you're pregnant. We know what it's like to enter into that experience, or at least some of you do, of Elizabeth who waited until her almost dying days. And Mary, as a 12, 13-year-old young virgin, experienced the butterflies in the stomach and the anticipation of what it was like to wait for the arrival of a child. And as parents do that, they begin to form all of these hopes and dreams about their children. Dreams of playing cricket in the backyard with your son. That dream is probably dead for anyone who lives in the inner west, just so you know. Well, I mean, what backyard, right? Dreams of cricket in the, in the hallway of your apartment complex, you know. Dreams of going fishing together. 
father-son activities, maybe dreams of attending your daughter's first ballet concert. It's not my dream, just so you know. (laughs) Dreams of what your child will achieve and become and of how God's going to use them. I still remember that moment where Judah was born and I picked him up and I was like, this child is going to be a world changer. <laughs> and I prayed that to God and I hope he doesn't listen to this sermon because that's a, lots a lot of unfair expectation on one person. But you have dreams and hopes and wishes as a parent. I wonder what Mary and Elizabeth dreamt of as they lay awake at night, uncomfortably pregnant, unable to find that spot where they could fall asleep. Wonder what they dreamt of. Wonder what they anticipated. You know, that sense of anticipation is only heightened by the message that the angels bring of these two boys. You see, Elizabeth is told that her son, John, is the one who is going to prepare the way for the Messiah, that he's going to be a prophet, That his message is going to ring out to Israel to call people to prepare their hearts. He is the precursor. He is the herald of the arriving king. This is what the angel says to John's father, Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. That is the, the prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for probably decades that they would have a child. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the power and spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's a lot of expectation for a young boy. John the Baptist, he is the one who will prepare God's people for the arrival of the King. He is the one whose voice is heard in the wilderness, fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And so as Elizabeth and Mary wait, there is great anticipation and expectation of these boys and how God will use them for his purposes. Imagine sitting down as Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth and her relative Zechariah and they discuss these miracles that have taken place. Zechariah was a priest He ministered to the people of God in the temple. And there's a fair chance that Zechariah was fairly well versed in Old Testament scripture. He knew the promises. You can imagine them sitting around the dinner table and Zechariah saying, Mary, don't you remember what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 7? That he will give a sign and the sign will be that a virgin will be with child. Mary, that's you. You imagine more than just wondering, I wonder what color eyes he would have. I wonder how he is going to fulfill this promise that God has made. I wonder if people will receive and acknowledge this. 
But you know, Mary and Elizabeth aren't the only ones who are waiting. Because we've already heard that the whole nation of Israel has been waiting for their king. People have read for themselves. They've heard the promises. And those who were serious about God had been waiting, anticipating, looking for what God was going to do. And there are two people in particular that God, that Luke sorry, chooses to highlight in his version of the life of Jesus as examples of people who would wait. And they are Simeon and Anna. So have a look at Luke chapter 2 with me. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy or set apart to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And, he was, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his hands and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And his father, that is Jesus' father and mother, marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, a sword that will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." I don't know about you, but as you read that, there's a sense of a really significant moment happening here. Mary and Joseph come, and they're they're good law-abiding Jews, and they come to fulfill what was required of them as new parents. You remember the the, the birth narrative of Jesus, Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem to complete the census of Caesar Augustus and there's nowhere to stay, there's no hospitals and so Joseph potentially helps deliver his own son in a feeding barn full of animals and that very act has meant that both Mary and Joseph are now ceremonially unclean and need to offer a sacrifice for their cleansing. But there's a second law that's required, and that's the law of the redemption of the firstborn. If you cast your minds back to Exodus, as God is calling his people out of slavery, the very last plague he sends is that he says, I will kill the firstborn of every family, the firstborn male in every family in Israel, unless you smear blood across the top of your doorframe. And he does so. And as a result of that, God says, therefore, every firstborn is mine. And in order to redeem that child back, the family would come, present the child to the Lord at the temple, and then pay a redemption price, a sacrifice to redeem that child back. And so Mary and Joseph come, and they fulfill these moments, these these law requirements of them in worship to God. 
But as they come into the temple that day, Simeon is there. Simeon, who had been waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. And, and as I, I don't know if you kind of picked this up, but as I read that, I was thinking, gee, that reminds me of The Lion King. You know, the opening scene of The Lion King. Whatever that means. I think it means here comes the lion, right? And, and then there's that moment like Rafiki, he picks up Simba and he walks to the edge of the rock and he holds him up and the drums like and circle of life crescendos and the whole animal kingdom bows. Maybe slightly less dramatic in the temple with Simeon, but there is still a recognition nonetheless that this child is the king. And Simeon picks him up and prophesies about this one who had been promised. Now, if you're a parent, particularly a first-time parent, you know the anxiety of going out in public when everyone wants to touch, poke, prod, pick, kiss your newborn baby, particularly before you've, they've had their six, eight-week vaccinations, and, and you're there, and, you know... Old Nana, whose um, you know, false teeth are falling out and has got a heavy chest infection, wants to pull the, the just so you know, the cloth over the pram. The, the, this is a hot tip for all you non-parents out there. Or The cloth over the pram isn't always just because the baby's sleeping. Sometimes it's to protect Nana from picking the cloth up, sticking her chest-infected mouth in there and slobbering all over this newborn baby, right? That's the first parent's fear. In fact, that's every parent's fear. That some random would just come and pick up this baby of yours. And, and that's what Simeon does. As Jesus comes into the temple to be offered, Simeon grabs this child and he recognizes in that moment, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. This is God's appointed king. You see, Simeon was given a promise by the Spirit that he would not die until he had laid eyes on the Messiah. And he'd been waiting, clinging to that promise, believing that God would come through and do what he said he would. And Simeon sees in this moment the significance of a young eight-year-old Jewish boy called Jesus Simeon ticks the last thing off his bucket list. He's like, Lord, you can take me now. I'm good. I'm done. My eyes have seen your salvation. The wait is over. But the second person we see waiting here and anticipating is a prophetess named Anna. And this is what it says about Anna in chapter 1, verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, the same moment that Simeon is doing his Rafiki-style thing, coming up at that very hour, she begins to give thanks to God and speak of Him, that is the Messiah, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna too is waiting. Presumably she's part of the the crew who's waiting faithfully because she is the one who speaks to those who wait and they listen and she prophesies about this, this baby because it has been revealed to her as well that this is 
the one. Now, Luke didn't need to necessarily include Simeon and Anna in the story. So why are they there? What function do these two characters play in Luke's version of the life of Jesus? Well, they're there as an example of those who are spirit-filled and waiting and anticipating the fulfillment of God's promises. They're an example of those who believe and cling to the promises of God. And the people of God, whether it's Old Testament or New, the people of God have always been awaiting people. Always. You you think about uh, how we explain the gospel here at Anchor in four grand movements, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Those four movements are broken by two significant periods of waiting. Creation fall, Genesis 1 to 3, and then what do we do? We wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait until Matthew chapter 1, until the end of the Gospels where Jesus dies on the cross and there is redemption, and then he returns to the Father, ascending to the right-hand side of the Father and promises to come back, and we wait again, and we're waiting, and we're waiting until the final chapter of God's story, restoration, where he makes all things new. The people of God are awaiting people. We've always been awaiting people. And we find ourselves, in particular, living between the first coming of Jesus and the second. And so the posture of waiting is a posture that we ought to adopt as God's people. Waiting for Jesus to come again. In Hebrews 9.28 it says this, So Christ... Having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. That's what kids do on Christmas Eve, right? Eagerly waiting, anticipating, looking forward to, getting excited about. And I think we need to recover that sense of anticipation about the second coming of Jesus. But the reality is for many of us, I think, we think that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be an interruption to my plans, my purposes, the things that I'm hoping to achieve, my life, my dreams. I love that old quote from Martin Luther, and I'm sure you've heard it. He says, live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. If that's reality... If that's true, how would that change the way we live this afternoon? Eager waiting. Eager waiting would probably be taken as impatience in our culture, would it not? That's, that's probably what we would think eager waiting looks like. It would be a nice spin on a negative thing. You're, you're impatient. No, no, I'm just, I'm just waiting eagerly. But anticipation or eager waiting is not opposed to patience. This is what James says in James chapter 5, verse 7 to 8. James 5, 7 to 8. Says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient. 
Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, if you were to describe the virtues of our generation, patience probably wouldn't be at the top of the list, would it? We're just not good at it. When you think about what it feels like to wait to download a movie off Apple Movie, right? And you, you, you select the movie you want and then it starts to load it and it comes up with the spinning wheel and it says, an hour, 20 minutes. And what do you do? You curse the internet. Damn, internet. And well, Maybe it's just me. We've just got new internet, so I'm really hopeful that uh, we're not going to have to have the spinning wheel in the hour. Tw- we load a movie at 5.30 to watch it at 7 o'clock, so it's ready. Or think about waiting in a food queue. It's really long. You go to a festival or event and the menu is there on the shipping container for everyone to see and the queue is 10 minutes long and you get to the front of the line and the person in front of you goes, hmm, what should I have? And you're like, the queue is 10 minutes long. The menu was right there. Couldn't you decide in this moment? And then when you get there, you want to decide then and you lose. Maybe it's, again, you guys must be really patient. Or think about traffic, Sydney traffic. You know, you realize um, how much you complain about traffic when your kids, who are parrots, start to repeat the things you say when you get in the car. Even when there's no traffic, our kids will say things like, gee, there's a lot of traffic. Oh, there's traffic. How much traffic? The traffic's really bad today. But the worst kind of waiting, the worst kind of waiting of all is the 30 minutes on hold to your internet service provider. Only to... Have the call received by a trainee from an offshore call center. And you think, I've been waiting 30 minutes to talk to someone who's less competent than I am about it. You know you're going to be asking for forgiveness after the end of that phone call. (laughs) We hate waiting. We hate waiting. And yet, waiting eagerly is the posture of God's people that we wait for the return of Jesus, our King. You know, this season into the lead-up of Christmas is called Advent. And in some faith traditions, they, they remember the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and remind themselves of the posture that's required of God's people to wait in anticipation, to do exactly what James calls us to do, to do exactly what John the Baptist called the nation of Israel to do, to prepare our hearts for the Lord. That's what we're called to do. To wait with anticipation. To cling to the promises that God has given. I will send my son back. He is coming. He will make all things new. The kingdom will be established. You know, there's a story that Tim Keller tells of two men who are both given the exact same job. Their job is to put a nut onto a screw. All day, every day, simply one task, to roll a nut onto a screw. The difference is the first man is told that he will be paid $35,000 a year for the job. The second man is told that after 12 months, he will be paid $35 million dollars. Now, what do you suppose the difference is between the first man and the second man and the attitude that they have as they come to work that day? The first man hates his job. It's boring. He has nothing to look forward to. 
And so he screws the nut onto that bolt and curses the job that he's received. But the second man, on the other hand, comes in with a a step and a jump and a whistle and joy in his heart. Why? Because he knows that as he screws the one millionth bolt, uh, nut onto that bolt, that at the end of the year he will receive $35 million, which is enough to purchase one house in Sydney. <laughs> you see, our future hope ought to profoundly impact our current reality. The thing that we are waiting for, that we are hoping for, ought to profoundly affect our present reality. And no matter what our circumstances are, we wait with joy in anticipation that God is going to make all things new. We eagerly wait. Our future hope profoundly impacts our present. It changes the purpose that we have in life, the reason that we live. Our future hope changes our view of justice and injustice. Our future hope changes our perspective on suffering, that we consider even our present sufferings not worth comparing to our future glory. It changes the way that we view the future with optimism because truly, The people of God are the only people who can say with integrity, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Yes, amen, it is, because God is making all things new. We've started a little Christmas tradition at our house a few years ago. It's called the Elf on the Shelf. And in case you didn't realize that it's totally a thing for parents these days, and the way that this elf on the shelf works is this little red elf, and he comes with an uh, accompanying storybook. And the story is that the elf sits there during the day and watches the children and watches whether they've been naughty or nice, good or bad. And then every night he flies to the North Pole and reports to Santa how good the children have been. And then he comes back in the morning and he hides in a new hiding spot and then watches the next day. And you can't touch him because he'll lose his Christmas magic and he won't be able to fly back to Santa. And so we've been doing this with our kids. And what it's doing, the effect of what it is doing is that every morning, our kids have called him Santa Sonny. That's, that's the name he's been given. And every morning they get up excited. Where's Santa Sonny hiding this morning? They run around the house and they look for him. And then they go to their little advent calendar and they get a chocolate or a lollipop or something that's, that Tasha's hidden in their advent calendar and it's building this sense of anticipation. Not that you really needed to do that for Christmas anyway, but they're waiting for Christmas. It's coming. We're counting down the days. But what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? So I've been trying to make a point of reminding the kids of what we wait for by asking the question, what's, remember, what, what is Christmas all about? What is Christmas all about? The answer they give us is Jesus. Now, I knew that that was sinking in because a couple of weeks ago, Tash came home from picking the kids up from preschool and she said to me that the teachers at preschool were teaching the kids about Christmas. And one of the teachers said to the little small group of children, what is Christmas all about? And the kids were like, presents and holidays and Christmas trees. And Judah was like, no, Christmas is about Jesus. I was like, amen. Go, you little world-changing preacher, you. 
Well, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting for the return of the King. We're waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise that he will deal with injustice, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes, that he will establish his kingdom and make all things new. The famous 18th century preacher and hymn writer Charles Wesley captured this waiting spirit in his carol. And it says this, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Joy to those who long to see thee, day spring from on high appear. Come, thou promised rod of Jesse, of thy birth we long to hear. Of thy birth we long to we are waiting We're waiting, we're anticipating, we're eagerly waiting the return of Jesus. Christmas Day is just eight sleeps away, in case you haven't done your Christmas shopping yet. Eight sleeps away. And no doubt this week is going to be busy. There's going to be a lot to do as you wrap up those last minute tasks at work, as you work twice as hard this week and the week you get back so you can have a week off in the middle. It's called a holiday. That's going to happen. And you have to finish your Christmas shopping and your wrapping of the presents and potentially you may have to pack for the road trip that happens on Boxing Day and be ready and maybe even you're busy preparing for some summer mission that you're going on to communicate to people the good news of Jesus. As you do that, don't, don't forget to stop and pause amidst the rush of Christmas and in your preparation. Don't forget to remember what this is about. We're not just getting ready to celebrate with family and eat ham and turkey and prawns and croissants and the best cheese that you can think of. That's not what we're waiting for ultimately. What we're waiting for is the return of our king. And so let's not forget amidst the busyness and craziness of Christmas what this is all about. The prophet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 25, verse 8 and 9, he says, God will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the approach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. Why? For the Lord has spoken, and he is trustworthy. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have what? Waited for Him, that He might serve us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. We're going to do exactly that right now. We're going to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord. As we celebrate this morning the Lord's Supper, Down the front here and in the middle of the auditorium, there are two stations with bread and grape juice. And we invite those of you who love Jesus, who are eagerly waiting to come and celebrate this meal together. A reminder that Jesus came with a mission and a purpose and that mission and purpose was to die on the cross, to forgive us our sins and to give us a future hope. And so I invite you to come. Come with a heart of eager anticipation and waiting, clinging to the promises of God.
that He will make all things new. And our prayer team is going to be available up the back to the sides of the room. They've got orange lanyards around their neck and they would love to pray for you this morning, whatever it is, whatever need you have. As you come into Christmas, this is often a painful, difficult time for some. Perhaps head to the prayer team and have them pray for you that God would center your heart on His promises in the lead up to Christmas. And finally, we're going to respond in worship as we sing. That's one of the things that identifies people who wait eagerly are those who sing. And so we're going to respond to our great God. I'm going to pray for us, church. Why don't you join me as I lead us in prayer? Father God, we thank you that your promises are sure, they're good, they're certain. We thank you that we do not live wondering what our future will be. So Father God, I pray that you would help all of us to cling so tightly to our promised future that it would shape our reality, our present reality, would shape our understanding of what we live for, shape our understanding of our pain and our suffering, shape our understanding of our purpose for existence. Would you help us to be a people who wait well in eager hope and expectation of our King who would return. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen.